Hello everyone, it's November 17th, 2020. This week we got Starship Test Anomalies, which is always happening, and this test is no exception. Then we got Crew 1, which is a first, but here's hoping that that's always happening too. It's been an interesting week in spaceflight, let's talk about it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 285 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we just went down our YouTube, or YouTube, a Wikipedia slash YouTube, whatever, rabbit hole on shuttle ejection seats. <laughs> I, I, or I guess just a rabbit hole in general. Uh, ejection seats, ejection pods, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Were most of these concepts for re-entry and not takeoff? I mean, late re-entry, right? Like landing. <laughs> yeah. This is what I'm thinking is that these concepts don't work for much of ascent and descent. Yeah. Well, uh, the Hermes concept where you have like an entire pod dedicated to a single person, um, that, that might be okay for a wider envelope. But yeah, it's such limited utility, you know, just given the shuttle's configuration that you generally don't want to be outside of it. And you don't want, you definitely don't want to put a lot of money into getting people outside of it. Yeah. You generally don't want to be outside of it. <laughs> Well put. So one more thing before we get into the news. Um, it looks like Sophia's safe for 2021. I, I really, Yay. truly thought that it was going to get canceled. And because, you know, when NASA says, hey, let's um, let's go ahead and cancel program. I don't think it's that often that Congress is like, no, keep doing it. Um, but not mm -hmm. only did Congress tell them uh, to go ahead and keep flying Sophia, um, they also had a really, I guess, scathing, <laughs> uh, reply hmm. to the, uh, like when they, when they mark up the NASA budget and hand it back with approvals, um, they include, you know, response documentation. They, they tore NASA a new one. They were like, okay, look, you don't get to stop flying Sophia. You also have to, um, take the money for the missions that you didn't fly due to the pandemic. Mm. You need to put those into your active missions. And I think, uh, one of the lines was like, I don't remember the exact wording, but I think it was something like NASA is advised to not request less money or is, is in the future advised to request enough money to fund all of their objectives. Because basically, you know, NASA, um, slimmed down their request, hoping that they would be able to get their entire requested budget filled, um, sort of, sort of the negotiating tactic where you ask for more money than you actually need. And then when you get to step it back, you seem reasonable. Um, and you, and you ultimately get more money than if you had asked for the actual amount. That you, and, and I, I think that was kind of what NASA did was they said, okay, look, here's a slim down budget. It's still higher than what you gave us last time, but maybe we'll get all of it. And, uh, Congress was like, no, you, you get, uh, <laughs> what, like a billion and a half dollars less than what you asked for. Huh. I thought when you said that, what, what they were saying is ask for more because what I figured that NASA most often did was they would ask for less and then, you know, like just say, Hey, we need more money later on. No, no, they, they, they did. They, Congress said it does happen in ask. other contexts. <laughs> yeah. Right. But like here, Congress is basically like, tell us what you need and we will approve it. And don't try to hide things behind other things. Tell us what your full mm -hmm. amount is and let us make a decision, you know, an informed decision, I guess. Starship number eight. We uh, got to watch a cool test firing and some weird anomalies happened. And that's what we're going to discuss. This particular test fire was pretty unique in that this was the first one, I believe, with a cone, like an actual mm -hmm. nose cone. No, nose cone and the flappy flaps. Yeah, it looked <laughs> more like an actual starship, which was cool. Yeah. That just does something psychologically. But there was like an issue with the 
header tanks on this vehicle, which I believe at least one of them is located in that nose cone, right? So, which I suppose they could have done mm -hmm. anyway. You know, you just don't put it in a nose cone, but they had encountered some kind of anomaly and we don't know what that was. But um, I don't know. What do you think it was? Because I have no idea. No clue. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, so far, the only thing we know is that there was some debris that was observed, like kind of like melting or trickling from underneath the rocket, you know, like yeah. I don't know how to describe well, and, it. And on the on the live feed, somebody said something about some debris that was kicked up higher than the than the nose. So I don't I don't know. So these were two firings back to back like oh on really separate days yeah oh okay i didn't even put that together ah yeah yeah so that's that that's the kind of wild thing like they they really snuck this up because i guess they did it you know on consecutive uh, uh nights or actually i think they were both evening ones but <laughs> in any event <laughs> yeah no so but but yeah the 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 first firing you see like like all these you know sparks on these ballistic trajectories kind of you know that you could kind of see tracing back to the um underside and um scott manley of course you know had a wonderful video on it and he and everybody else you know watching this speculated that given the fact that you know it seemed to be coming from below the engine and that what was really cool is post firing right when the lights kind of die down that the sparks weren't glowing themselves so it wasn't hot you know mm. glowing pieces of something but rather was being illuminated by the rocket fire and mm. so that makes it seem like it was basically the ground kind of getting blasted to all hell and sent up. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that with that uh, analysis. They, I guess they, when the light dims, the the debris dims as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, that that I, did, I don't think I caught that because to me they definitely looked like they were glowing. I didn't really. I, I would have instantly just been like, "Here's sparks firing off," you know, from something yeah. happening at the, you know at the base of mm -hmm. where the firing is taking place. But, but David, yeah, but there was a different thing after the firing. Then there was dripping what probably was hot and molten and glowing itself, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. uh, stuff that was trickling down from the bottom. Yeah, and just before they cut the engines, there was a weird noise, and that's the other big thing that the everyone quack. remarked on. Yeah, the quack, honk, the whatever honk. it was. Yeah. It, sound, yeah. <laughs> it, made, it didn't sound good, and I have no idea what that was. So so the quack at the end sounded like another another rocket engine spinning its turbos up, and I'm thinking it's the Atlas, the Atlas vehicle spinning up during the during the Mercury program, where it kind of has almost like a jet engine kind of sound to it. So I, I didn't think it was that crazy at first until I realized it was at the end of everything. And you really, you shouldn't have things going higher pitched at the end, sweeping up the, <laughs> the pitch range. If anything, they should be pitching down as things slow down. So who knows? Did you guys see uh, Elon's tweet saying he thinks they might have melted a pre-burner? Yeah, yeah. The triple pump starts up just slightly before the engines do, and so you can mm -hmm. sometimes hear it, but it's like very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some that sound like like a much higher pitch screeching noise, like it just sounds bad, but that's actually how it's supposed to sound. Um, but I imagine they can sound quite different depending on the engine. So I don't know what we heard in this instance, but I guess it maybe had something to do with a melting pre-burner. <laughs> yeah, so Colin in the chat uh, actually um, shared a nice video with us. It's actually a uh, the, the Gemini, uh, the Titan uh, launch vehicles were the ones that had that boop that you remember. So see, I I knew I wasn't certain about that. So thank you, Colin, for, <laughs> for point. And the video will be in the show notes. It's a nice uh, Amy Share title uh, video. So so the other kind of wild thing was the the pneumatics loss that Elon tweeted about. You know, the same time he uh, revealed that uh, an engine pre burner uh, 
or fuel hot gas manifold may have melted. Uh, that was causing the dripping David was referring to. But um, they evidently lost pneumatics, which, you know, resulted in a huge uh, pressure buildup in the LOX header tank, uh, which, right, is the one at the in the nose cone. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. we, you know, uh, but mercifully, a burst disc, which we kind of saw that um, uh, not having a burst disc uh, is what took care of one of those dragon capsules, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. back in the past. And so a burst disc there um, in this LOX header tank was able to basically uh, relieve some of the pressure and allow venting to happen, uh, even if the pneumatics weren't uh, were not functioning. So, mm -hmm. so, so was the pneumatics failure, did, did that lead to like a valve failure or something? How does a pneumatics failure result in overpressure in the locks and not like the pneumatic system? Exactly. Oh, that, that's my understanding is that the, the, to be able to open that valve for venting, uh, they weren't able to do that. And so the burst, uh, disc as a emergency kind of measure was able to, uh, once the pressure reached a certain value. That's, that's interesting that, that it was a pneumatically actuated. So, so that was a, a vent valve and not the, the valve downstream leading to the turbo pumps or the, the gas generators. As far as I understand. Yeah. I mean, if it's something that was like, and, and the thing that, I mean, I guess I don't understand, uh, you know, personally is that like, you know, that it affected, um, just, that tank in particular. Um, but maybe it was just because that is the one that would reach the most critical pressure first if they mm -hmm. had, you know, mm -hmm. a failure um, among multiple, you know, hmm. parts of the system. Quick self burn, self correction burn. Uh, uh, Raptor is a full, a full flow staged engine. So it doesn't have a gas generator, right? Yeah, right. It's, it's a closed cycle there. So yeah. it's not like a gas generator that just, you know, vents overboard the gases from the turbo pump. Yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. But I think that Dennis is right because the header tank is so much smaller that it would reach that critical pressure mm -hmm. faster. At least that's what I had mm. heard. It's just because there's not a lot of, you know, room there for things to, you know, fill out any kind of a headspace because it doesn't really have that. Well, mm -hmm. what do they call it? Like ullage? Ullage. Um, yeah. Ullage. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point is the header tank is supposed to be You're like, right. Right. <laughs> Everything but the ullage. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, it looks like um, hopefully this won't drag things out too long uh, before we get to see that 15 kilometer flight, which is just mm -hmm. going to be amazing. But um, they probably are going to have to replace an engine at least, you know, if they can still salvage uh, uh, serial number serial number eight. But um, uh, otherwise, you know, that's kind of the next step here um, to look forward to that. And if and if it isn't salvageable then hopefully you know super uh, sn9 will be able to do that flight i mean hopefully they can salvage it because it's not it didn't blow up it's just you know right. not a bad engine because i we i guess we didn't explicitly say right but this this had three engines firing of the ultimate six for starship translating on over to another story crew one um which maybe by the time this is out it will have launched we don't know um but it got delayed again so we're going to talk about that now one thing i actually wanted to ask because i have a question or not a question but one thing that i wanted to bring up was that the reason why it was most recently delayed was because spacex wasn't able to get the drone ship out in order to recover that first stage in time so i do remember us talking about if they would ever push back a launch of a crewed vehicle for the reason of not being able to recover the first stage. So I guess that is the case, but I don't remember what our conclusion was because we were kind of kind of like going back and forth over whether they would, because it seems like if you have to launch astronauts to space, well, you have a job to do and it's not NASA's problem that you can't recover your first stage. Mm. But I guess that that is part of the deal is that they get to recover their stages and, you know, the crew mm -hmm. just has to get bumped back. I, I think the conclusion that we came to had something to do with the fact that 
conditions for booster recovery, like atmospheric conditions for booster recovery, are um, a lot more tolerant than than weather conditions for crew recovery. So, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be an issue. <laughs> yeah, if it was going to be mm-hmm. too high seas for booster recovery, it was too high seas. Uh, for the crew to be safe in the case of an abort. And I think that that's what we did conclude. But in this case, that, you know, it's kind of funny how, you know, these weird unforeseen things happen because the seas were too high. But the problem now is just that they can't get the drone, you know, that distance far enough because it's, I don't know how many hundreds of miles out to sea, but it, you know, just can't get there in time. So, you know, it's not the weather. It's just, you know, the transit time for the drone. So had they had it like out there the whole time, then it would be an issue. But I guess the seas were too rough because of a hurricane or something. I'm not sure. Yeah, Shannon. Yeah. Uh, 2020's hurricane season is Yeah, yeah. We're ridiculous. In the, we're into the Greek letters now. Exactly, which, yeah. Ada we just had, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which has happened one other time that I can recall. It was, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago or something, like you know, a long time ago. So it's a new capsule. Resilience. New capsule for crew members. One thing that I know we had discussed and I just totally forgot, is it a four-person crew? That's the maximum, right? Because, I mean, this thing can carry seven, but somehow it had slipped my mind that they're only planning on ever launching four people, which I guess is, you know, as many as they would need to launch. But That that may have to do with ISS, which can only support... Right, uh, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think it has to do with the fact that ISS can only support seven people at a time. And so since three people fly on Soyuz, if if there was ever going to be um, enough room for seven people, or, or, or yeah, if, if you're ever going to fly more than four people on Dragon, that would have to mean there was only one person mm-hmm. uh, on board. Well, I guess it would be two people, right? Four, five, six, seven is three. So there, there would have to only be two people on ISS when when Dragon launched, and that doesn't seem super likely to happen anytime soon like i think you probably need the iss to have three people minimum seven people maximum you you probably if you have two people on iss you're not in a normal circumstance and so i don't think you would ever mm-hmm. plan to fly more than four people on on crew dragon which brings up an interesting point that you can only ever have seven people aboard station because i wasn't sure what the max occupancy of mm-hmm. you know the station was yeah for now anyway who if we were to get um uh, what what's the uh, sorry real quick what's the uh bigelow the giant bigelow module the 330 or whatever if that was docked to station you probably could fit more than seven people like it, i think it's yeah. got its own uh it it does have its own uh, life support. So in that case, that, that might change the equation. But when we say also, just to be clear, right, a, a crew of seven, that's like a longer term crew of seven, right? Have we ever had more than seven people on ISS? Right. Yeah. During the shuttle era, there, there, there was at least, I feel like I, maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like I saw an image at one point where you had like what looked like an absurd number of people on the yeah. ISS at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's that's true, but that that was with shuttle docked, right? Shuttle Yeah, yeah, that was shuttle and those were long term uh, short term, yeah. Yeah, shut I mean shuttle ISS is a very different beast than ISS than, <laughs> than Dragon ISS. <laughs> yes, yes, mm. yeah. We're not we're not doing that anymore, but yeah. And actually as I'm thinking of it, I was thinking about Mir, but I remember when they had those little swap or you know how like when they had to do a crew rotation in and they had more people on than normal, they had to burn those little oxygen candle things because, mm. you know, like you just couldn't keep life support going with that many people mm. on board. And so I don't know if if the station has something similar where maybe if you do have say like you 
know, nine, just for a couple of days, you have like nine people or something that maybe they have something that they can do to kind of, you know, scrub the extra carbon dioxide and get extra oxygen. But yeah, I, I have no idea. I just want to make sure it didn't sound like, you know, you couldn't physically get more than seven people on station for any period of time without it, you know, going into the danger zone. Exploding. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's fun because like the, the ability to have more than six people on station didn't come until, I don't know, like, I mean, it was near the end of the, of the shuttle lifespan. I mean, it was, you know, like 2006, mm -hmm. seven, eight, something like that. But the, mm -hmm. the maximum, I just looked it up. The maximum uh, number of people at one time was actually 13. Whoa. Uh, which, oh, yeah, that's goodness. crazy. <laughs> when did that happen? I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm tracking it down. 2009. So there was basically six people on the crew. So that must have been two Soyuzes. And then a shuttle came. So six plus seven is 13. Okay. So I'm guessing this is only for a couple of days, right? Yeah, it could have been too long. My understanding is that the limiting factor really is just you have to have, you know, enough vehicles to bring everyone back in case of an emergency. So that's kind of, you know, what you have to have because you could obviously bring up some people, go back down or whatever, you know, like the orbit or ditch your Soyuz or whatever you want to do and then bring up more people on board a Soyuz or shuttle or whatever. But you have to be able to bring everyone back at any given moment. So that's kind of what limits the number of people on on board and because you would have to have prior to dragon you can only ever use mirror and mirror can only hold three people right and there's only two soyuz. Of them. Sorry. soyuz yeah so you would have to have soyuz and those can only carry three people and there's only two docked so that's six and so that's as many as you can have i mean you could get seven people there obviously but you can't have seven because then you know one astronaut has to sit in someone's lap <laughs> Yeah, there's not that much space in Soyuz. I, I never knew I did like thirteen. That blows my mind that there was yeah, ever that many. I just remember seeing like these images of like just like a lot of people, but even that like was maybe this ten person image or this what do we got three six nine person image in there. That that still seems like so many. <laughs> I think I've seen those images too. I just didn't bother to count <laughs> because it looks like oh it's like seven people. But, oh wait a minute, no, it's ten. So STS one twenty seven might have or has an image of all thirteen in the same kind of frame. So Dennis, uh, NASA recently, just days ago, certified Crew-1 to fly. Do you know what the last little bit of that certification required? Basically, it, the, the key was that they had to sign a document known as the Human Rating Certification Plan. And so this was all done during a, a flight readiness review. Mm. Um, but it, it was, again, it kind of surprised me that something like this would happen so last minute. But I have to imagine that it's kind of like um, almost a uh, rubber stamping of it. You know what I mean? Like they, they clearly knew that, you know, they were going to get the certification. But uh, for it to become official, you know, less than a week, uh, it seemed, before the launch, depending on when it actually launches. But. Well, I mean, if it if it's tied to the flight readiness review, like that, that makes sense. Because yeah. you do that as, as late as you can. But yeah, I just looked it up November 14th. At 7.49 p.m., and we're recording this uh, in the middle of the day on the 15th. So, yeah, really, mm -hmm. really right before we recorded this. I appreciate that, NASA. Right. And, and, and I mean, and I guess, yeah, like kind of to your point, like I'm sure the flight readiness reviews, you know, are typically, uh, you know, a, a last minute thing. But, you know, it, it wasn't uh, very smooth or it could have been smoother. You know, um, with the uh, the Merlin engine, uh, mm. you know, uh, lacquer mm -hmm. kerfuffle. Um, mm -hmm. And so that mercifully was resolved. And it was actually the GPS uh, 
launch, uh, the, the recent GPS launch on a Falcon 9 that kind of showed that the Merlins are good and ready, you know, to kind of resume normal operations on these. Yeah, and did they, did they cite the GPS launch in the, uh, they did actually. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Well, I'm yeah, I'm I'm actually not entirely sure. I I haven't read the review itself, but I at least uh, based on the reporting, it sounds like um, that was pointed to as the piece of evidence that you know yeah, yeah we're, we're we're more than happy to certify things at this point. Yeah, that that was cool to kind of watch that tango that dance play out. Is are we going to need one? Are we going to need two? Mm. Are we going to need neither? Turns out one was the answer. And now that it's certified, we're still looking at potential delays, right? We kind of talked about this a little bit, um, but if if Shannon doesn't abate and they're not able to launch uh, tonight, when's their next window opening up? I believe the next window is the 18th, which would be Wednesday and the day after the show, you know, after the show drops. (laughs) And so um, it's, it's all related to weather, which is good because that's something that, you know, uh, nature's throwing at you and not engineering. At, at this point, though, if it were to launch, uh, right, we record this uh, on Sundays, uh, if it launches today, then that's going to be a longer trip to the station, um, which I guess would really kind of show you what, you know, sticking the four people in a Dragon capsule is really like, because that's uh, 28 hours and 18 and a half orbits of the Earth before um, they would reach station. But um, instead, though, if they get pushed to Wednesday, then that's only going to be an eight and a half hour trip or five and a half uh, orbits, which, you know, is kind of more comparable, right, to the, I know, right, Soyuz just had that uh, that quick path, which was only like three hours, right, or whatever. But I feel like this is more closer to kind of the standard trips to the station. Okay. And boy, I'm really doing a lot of these uh, sticking my foot in my mouth. So for some, I, I had gotten the name hurricane shannon stuck in my head yeah uh, because i just (laughs) (laughs) well i i beat you to it um so uh in in the chat um sam had been talking about uh the crew recovery zone which is near shannon ireland and i read Mm -hmm. that and my my brain just went oh right uh hurricane shannon and uh did did a great job of translating that (laughs) into uh long-term memory when it shouldn't have Um, so, it, so it's, yeah, it's, there, there's a storm, but it's not a named, uh, a named hurricane. Um, mm-hmm. so sorry about that. Well, there is hurricane, uh, there's hurricane Iota. Is that the one you're thinking of or is that a different one? Because yes. that one is named. Yeah. He just, yeah. I think because we talked about the hurricane the same time mm-hmm. we were talking yep. about Shannon, because remember yeah. we had, I don't remember, of course, I can't remember off the top of my head what episode it was. I don't have that kind of memory, but uh, we talked about the different um, dragon abort sites and that like, and you know, right, you had basically like uh, seven modes, right? But at least, you know, four or five of them were falling into the water, but you were getting progressively to higher uh, latitudes, including Shannon, I remember specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the last abort mode is flying backwards to Shannon to ireland so yeah okay well thank thank you for unraveling exactly why uh i i put those things together in my head uh i've been doing like three different things at the same time today and just this has happened over and over okay today has been a multitasking show to say the least (laughs) 
Yeah, it feels that way. And so Crew 2 is going to be flying on the same booster. This is uh, 1061, um, which, which will be recovered. Um, but Crew 2 won't be flown on Resilience. It'll be flown on Endeavor. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I remember reading about that and thinking how cool that was. Because, yeah, NASA gave them the green light. To... Well, actually, no, sorry. They gave the green light on the boosters. I wonder, like, did they always have the, the right to reuse the capsules? No, not... they didn't always. But I... I'm pretty sure I remember it was like a later on thing that like NASA kind of conceded and said, yeah, but I don't remember the details, but we did discuss that. So they can reuse capsules, they can reuse boosters, which I mean, that's that's basically SpaceX's philosophy. So Mm -hmm. uh, it makes sense that NASA would kind of be on board with that since they're demonstrating the, you know, that they're within the safety limits that they require. Um, And and so just a a quick recap, we have four crew dragons uh, that have been that that we know of are are uh, in construction or, or out of the factory. Um, there's the one that flew on the in-flight abort test. We don't know what they're going to do with that. There's Endeavor, which flew on Crew Demo Two, and then there's Resilience, which is flying on Crew One, and then Endeavor is going to fly again for Crew Two, and then there's there's a um, a cargo Dragon Two. So it's it's. Uh, I, I really like calling it Cargo Dragon and Crew Dragon, but that no longer makes sense because they're not going to fly uh, Dragon 1 anymore. They're going to fly Dragon 2s in, in a crew configuration. So C-208 is going to be flying in the in the crew or in, in the cargo configuration, and it hasn't been named yet. Who knows Who knows if they'll name it? But yeah, right now we've got Endeavor and Resilience, and it looks like they're going to be flipping back and forth and flying on reused boosters. And It's so cool. that Will this be the mm-hmm. first... I, I guess this will be the the maximally reused crew flight ever because um, we still have a, a new upper stage. Like the, no getting around that at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything else is already flown. That's that's going to be really cool to see uh, crew two fly. Yeah, you compare the size of the upper stage to the size of an external tank, and then that mm-hmm. kind of just wins mm-hmm. the reusability mm-hmm. more yeah, right then and yeah. there. <laughs> but I mean, the boosters get refurbished. So if you're going by overall mass. Don't you think it's kind of close? Well, well, he's talking. He's talking about in comparison to shuttle. Right. That's what I mean. So, if shuttle reuses the shuttle, or like you know, the, the like shuttle reuses, reuses more the mass. Yeah. Oh, I see. True. But but the I, yeah. But I mean, you most I'm saying of the fraction. I don't know. Vo- yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Mo- most of the most of the SRBs is is solid fuel. You know, there's there's no uh, there's no engine there that is taking up a lot of mass. I, I think it's probably it, yeah. If it's, I think in the spirit of what you mean, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> No, the, the, that would be cool numbers. The dry mass of each, right? Yeah. And just compare yeah. what fraction of it basically yeah. can be reused. Um, yeah. Setting aside just how much refurbishment was necessary for shuttle. Let's let's to, move fast yeah. onto the next thing before I start <laughs> uh, looking up all those numbers. <laughs> so I I think it's really cool that the dragon is not going to stay on the same docking node. You. You want to talk that about cool. that next? Yeah, yeah. So, right. So, they're going to dock at the uh, uh, IDA2, International Docking Adapter 2, which is at the forward end of Harmony, which is where uh, Demo 2, uh, right, with Bob Bank and Doug Hurley uh, docked to. And, um, but what's really cool is, um, right, Starliner uh, is going to have its uncrewed flight uh, in early January. So, uh, before the end of the year, the crew is going to basically hop back into their uh, resilience and translate over to uh, the Harmony Zenith port, ID. A3 and uh, dock there instead to make uh, space for Starliner. So, um, you know, fingers crossed the Star- Starliner's, you know, uncrewed flight is able to get there this time. And uh, 
it'll be pretty it'll be pretty great to see i mean could you just imagine what that's going to look like with you know two of these kind of next-gen commercial crew <laughs> vessels docked right there <laughs> and so and you know when this happens this will max out the uh the station at seven occupants for the first time since shuttle right since what 2011 so that's really exciting to see that many people up there and uh and then you know it's 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 an extended stay for sure. And and these, you know, these astronauts, you know, Shannon Walker, Victor Glover, Mike Hopkins and uh the NASA astronauts and then uh Jax's Soichi Noguchi. The, these are, you know, uh, Victor Glover is is a fresh this is his first flight, but the, you know, the other astronauts uh have, you know, experience. Uh they they've flown before. Soichi actually has flown on a shuttle, which I think is so cool uh, that a shuttle astronaut's going to be uh, on this one. But um but also, you know, uh and Shannon uh and Mike, uh, Shannon Walker, Mike Hopkins, I don't know them personally, uh, are both, um, veterans of long duration stays. And so this is going to be, uh, you know, crew one is going to be up there, uh, for six or seven months until, um, they return, uh, back to Earth. And so at that point, they're going to transition from expedition, geez, 65 to 66. Um, we're somewhere in that ballpark. Um, but they're going to, yeah, they're going to span the two. And really the reason why it's kind of like, you know, six or seven months, um, is because it really depends on when crew two launches because they want that to be kind of a clean transfer from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a nice, uh, long bit of time that they're going to be up there on station. So really exciting stuff. <laughs> I joked right before, you know, while we were talking about this, that it's going to be a little tricky to report on this since I'm just so excited for the launch to happen itself. But <laughs> Four short and sweets this week. What's the first one, Dennis? First up, an upgraded version of Sherpa Tug to fly in mid-2021. While the rideshare launch provider Spaceflight Incorporated had previously announced plans to upgrade its Sherpa orbital transfer vehicle, the company has now revealed that the spacecraft will use the Apollo Constellation engine, a Hall Effect thruster, and will target a launch mid-next year. Sherpa LTE, as it's called, will be capable of taking small sats to high orbits, cislunar space, or Earth escape trajectories, with a Delta V capability of greater than 6 kilometers per second. The company plans to launch a variant next month that lacks propulsion and half a dozen launches in 2021, some with Sherpa LTE and some with a more powerful, though less efficient, variant that uses a green bipropellant. Next, uh, Bridenstine is expected to turn down a continued position. I'm going to mostly have quotes here. So, um, What you need is someone who has a close relationship with the President of the United States. You need somebody who is trusted by the administration, and I think I would not be the right person for that in a new administration, Bridenstine said at a Crew One meet and greet. After you've run NASA, to go from doing this to whatever I do next is going to be really hard. This has been the greatest experience of my life so far, and I'm grateful for it. But I'm under no illusions. There are a lot of people that can do great work as the NASA administrator. So uh, who is the next likely administrator? As Bridenstine said, uh, there are a lot of people, and current rumors have not yet begun to narrow to a consensus. Next up, Mars sample return may be delayed. So an independent review panel created by NASA has recommended delaying the Mars sample return by two years. The panel has recommended pushing back two missions, the launch of a sample return lander and an Earth return orbiter. The panel provided 88 recommendations and findings to address the issues they found with the upcoming mission, among them extending the schedule for the mission and increasing the cost. Currently, the two remaining spacecraft are scheduled to launch in 2026 
but the review board is now recommending a slip to 2027 and or 2028, and possibly splitting the sample return lander into two missions. And finally, the first Falcon Heavy extended fairing launch has been sold, as far as I can tell. In an unexpected turn of events, in the National Security Space Launch Phase 2 award, SpaceX sold a Falcon Heavy launch to Space Force for nearly double the cost of each of the two Vulcan Centaur launches which were purchased in the same award. This is partially due to the fact that Vulcan is priced cheaper than Atlas, and also partially due to backdated Falcon 9 development costs, and partially due to future upgrades to SpaceX's Vandenberg launch facility, which includes a new vertical integration facility. More interestingly, though, the high price of this Falcon Heavy launch includes an extended fairing. This is the first sale of an extended fairing launch to our knowledge, and is almost certainly going to be the first flight of this 5-meter fairing. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have a correction from Ben Howard about uh, Noam Chomsky. This actually explains something because I was, you know, the, I had mentioned about our little, the little Noam named Noam Chomsky, yep. that he's not 15 millimeters as it turns out. Yeah. Uh, centimeters and millimeters always uh, wind up confusing me because 15 millimeters is 1.5 centimeters. And so when I read 150 millimeters, for some reason, I still think that's 1.5 centimeters instead of 15 centimeters. It's it's the tens instead of the hundreds that, that screws me up. And millimeters are they're 10 to the centimeter instead of 100, you know, like centimeters. Anyway, yes, Noam Chomsky is 15 centimeters tall, not a centimeter and a half tall, which... Should have caught that when David was like, really? It's that small? And I confidently go, yes, it is. Because that's what... Well, it was, it was just because the photo of the little gnome mm-hmm. looked bigger. Like, you know how you can kind of tell the size of something? Because if it's 15 like, millimeters, then a 50 millimeter gnome will only have so much detail. I mean, yeah. unless you have somebody who's a skilled crafts person, you know, yeah. small things. Yeah. I don't know. No, that's fair, though, because it is centimeters. Like, I guess they're just useful for a human like world you know a lot of things are usefully measured in centimeters but it does break the you know kilometers meters millimeters you know micrometers and and what's funny is there's actually a unit that we don't use that i think would really allow um decimeters right decimeters yeah oh yeah actually (laughs) i i I argue about i ran about this that's why i gassed i'm like yes so a decimeter i'm guessing is 10 oh that's 10 it's a tenth of a or a tenth of a meter a meter yeah which is i think the reason that americans don't like centimeters is because they're just too small like it like an inch is small but it's still two and a half centimeters um and so if we use decimeters that's 3.3 inches. That's that's a more manageable size, right? It's mm-hmm. easier to estimate because mm-hmm. there's less room for error compared to whatever you're measuring, ish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would I think it would help the metric system catch on. But since decimeters aren't in common usage, it's it's not going to happen. But I think we should just redefine an inch to be a decimeter, and then everything works out. Okay, moving on to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have just two winners. So I guess it was a good clue. The winners are Peter McMally and the Greek. So we didn't think of this very good clue. Um, this was actually brought to us by Emery Stagmer, who will actually be doing this week's this week's this week in spaceflight history or this week's spaceflight history. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to call it. Um, but yeah, so I guess take it away, Emery. Thanks, guys. 
Earth Observing 1 was the first mission that I actually worked on as a software engineer. It launched on the 21st of November 2000 uh, at 182425 UTC, which was about 9.30 in the morning Pacific time. Uh, this was Tuesday, two days before Thanksgiving in 2000. Uh, I couldn't actually get a flight out uh, from the launch site where I was working on the operations uh, until Thursday. And so I spent uh, Wednesday uh, in California uh, from Vandenberg, where the launch was, and then flew back home on Thanksgiving, uh, walked into the house at uh, 5.30 and sat down and put my suitcase down and sat down to Thanksgiving dinner at 5.30, uh, two days after the launch. This was the first launch. Uh, launch that I worked on. Uh, it was the first satellite that I worked on, and I was the satellite integration lead. So we had a bunch of different people who worked on uh, EO1, a bunch of teams. Uh, Litton Amacom did the command and data handling. AI Solutions did an artificial intelligence engine that allowed the spacecraft to determine its own Delta V burns in order to do station keeping with Landsat 7. And the Hammers company did the attitude control software that basically told the satellite how to fly and where to go. EO1 had a whole bunch of technology demonstrations that it did, and part of those were the uh, clue that we had for this week, hypercarbon-carbon plasma. Hyper was the Hyperion Imaging Spectrometer, which was a hyperspectral imager that had 330 spectral bands. Uh, there was a phased array X-band antenna that ran at about 100 megabits per second, pretty high, and we had a lot of trouble early on getting the ground systems configured to recognize that X-band properly. When they finally did get it to work, they could actually see the spacecraft over the horizon with the X-band, so the X-band would actually lock up before the S-band would. We used the S-band uh, at, you know, 30 kilobits per second or something like that in order to get down the command and data handling information that had been recorded on board or to do live, you know, the live communications. But the uh, high-rate science data was streamed uh, through the X-band phase array at, like I said, 100 megabits per second. This was a 8x8 uh, eight eight grid of X-band elements, and we actually wrote the algorithms that did the beam steering for the X-band phased array. The uh, the main spacecraft bus was 1553, which is pretty typical. It's a time-domain multiplexed master-slave bus configuration. But for uh, EO-1, one of the technologies that they were demonstrating here was the use of optical fiber instead of triaxial copper to do the communications, and they call that bus 1773. So it uses the exact same uh, logic and timing as a 1553 bus, but instead of having um, copper coil transducers, it has uh, uh, optical uh, send, and trans send and receive over the, from system to system. Uh, it turns out that's the only mission I actually know that actually ever used 1773. It turns out it was more of a pain in the neck than it was really worth. The pulsed plasma thruster was another part of the clue. It used a brick of Teflon with a coiled up, uh, like a straight piece of spring steel that was kind of coiled up at one end, and a, and a and it pushed on a small uh, rectangular cylinder of Teflon, and then a high voltage electricity pulse was used to vaporize the end of that Teflon brick. And when it went from not just a solid to a gas, but a solid all the way to a plasma and created a very high pressure and would then be ejected out the thrust uh, port, uh, they could use that for a uh, roll. Some, they did some testing with it and it worked just fine. They did some work with it where they actually used it for uh, roll control. There was a lightweight, flexible solar panel that was uh, demonstrated in addition to the main solar panel. If you go to Wikipedia and you search for Earth Observing 1 or EO-1, 
you'll see this in the picture uh, there. Uh, the main solar array has three big panels, but then there's a little tiny solar array that sticks out from the main spacecraft body. Uh, so that flex lightweight flexible solar array was an, an early demonstrator for that. There were carbon-carbon heat radiators. That was the carbon-carbon part of that uh, clue. And the, those heat radiators, it was just a thermal control on the, on the outside panel of the spacecraft, but it was the first time that that had been done. And there was an atmospheric correction device, so it would actually uh, look through the atmosphere at the surface of the Earth, and it then you could use that image uh, to apply corrections to the main spacecraft imager, which was called the Advanced Land Imager, or ALI. Now, the big thing about ALI was that it was a push-broom imager. Uh, in other words, this was really a technology demonstrator for the Landsat series. And Landsat 7, which was launched at almost the same time as EO-1, had a imager that was a very similar uh, configuration in terms of the spectral bands that it could see, although it had a much wider swath that it could look at. But Landsat 7 used a scanning mirror. And so the pixels were just a little bit blurred as that mirror scanned across the uh, the the breadth that it could see along its uh, along its track. EO1 had this push room imager which would basically snap the pixels in time so it would integrate them and snap them so that the pixels were all the way across the imager. Interestingly, they decided for some reason not to populate the entire uh, width of the advanced land imager. Otherwise, it would have had the same uh, swath width as Landsat 7. And unfortunately, the scanning mirror mechanism in Landsat 7 actually failed uh, later in its mission. And EO-1 was actually kept active for a very long time in order, partially in order to make up for this uh, this failure of Landsat 7. So Earth Observing 1, which launched in 2000, actually wasn't decommissioned until the 30th of March in 2017. This technology demonstrator had a planned one-year mission, and the electronics were designed for a five-year life, and it ran for 16 and a half years. And one of the things that I found out from the uh, ops team at the you know, decommissioning party that we went to was that EO-1 had never rebooted. So from the time that we booted up the main spacecraft processor on the pad on the rocket on launch morning, that spacecraft never rebooted. So, uh, you know, as, as one of the people who helped helped work on the uh, uh, operating system and the and the software integration on that. I was really, really proud uh, of that uh, accomplishment. And uh, quite honestly, we got a lot of marketing mileage out of it. When we started working on EO1, this was a brand new software team, and software in particular, but also the uh, the electronics team. Now, the, ele- the electrical engineers and mechanical engineers who were working on EO1, a lot of them had worked on other uh, electronic warfare platforms and things like that for Litton Amicom. However, that we didn't have any spacecraft experience and we didn't have a design. So Litton Amicom really wanted to be able to move into this spacecraft market. And we actually wrote a space act with Goddard Space Flight Center where Litton would invest 10,000 engineering hours in the microwave anostrostropy probe, later renamed for uh, David Wilkinson, uh, the WMAP, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisostropy Probe. And so uh, I actually worked on WMAP for a year before I worked on EO-1. And so the two were kind of sister spacecraft. Uh, uh, EO-1 launched in 2000. Uh, I think WMAP launched in 2001. And so they use the same processor. They use the same uh, fundamental CNDH architecture, uh, spacecraft bus. A lot of the software was very common. Uh, in fact, the plan was originally that, you know, we would go work on WMAP and then we would inherit the WMAP into uh, EO-1. 
to all the, all the flight software uh, and replace the attitude control software and then add the artificial intelligence engine I talked about. Uh, as it turned out, there were some things that there, you know, we found along the way that we that didn't work quite right in the software. And so EO1 actually ended up back propagating some of that work to WMAP. So uh, I worked on both programs uh, a little bit, but I spent a couple of years on EO1. And one of the, here's one of the things that we found. The processor that's the main processor on both spacecraft is derived from a MIPS R3000 processor. This is the same processor, the processor that's in a PlayStation 2. It was called a Mongoose 5, and it was built by the Sinova Corporation. So one of the things as Sinova was taking this uh, MIPS R3000 derivative processor and putting it into rad hard silicon was that one of the things that they, for whatever reason, didn't implement was something called a floating point underflow. So floating point can only uh, store uh, a finite amount of data. You don't have an infinite number of decimal points, effectively. And if you multiply a very small number by a very small number, you get an even smaller number. And eventually you get to the point where you can't represent that number anymore. The, the, you've underflowed the number of decimal digits. So if you multiply, you know, one billionth times one billionth, you're going to end up with a number that's, you know, 1e to the minus 18. Well, you can't represent that. And so uh, what you what you end up having is normally that you would set a flag in the process and just said, if this underflows, give me back a zero. But they didn't implement it that way. They implemented something where if you had a, an arithmetic underflow, the processor just threw a fault and said that was a that was an exception. It didn't even tell you it was a floating point exception. But we had a requirement in our attitude control software that we had to fly through that underflow. They wanted a zero back. So I actually wrote a floating point underflow handler that ended up being about 3,000 lines of assembly code and five or six operating system patches. And I found a flaw in the processor as I was doing that. Sometimes it wouldn't tell you exactly where the error was. You kind of had to hunt back and forth in the instruction <laughs> uh, array and figure out, or, you know, in the memory and figure out uh, which instruction had actually faulted. Uh, we, we implemented this. This was fun. Uh, one of the guys from Goddard, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, one of the guys from Goddard suggested that we actually implement this by simulating the instruction. And we simulated it by lifting the floating point uh, simulation emulators software package from NetBSD Unix. So we lifted the software package from uh, NetBSD Unix, which is a couple thousand lines of assembly code, compiled it into the EO1 code. And that is what ended up flying on both EO1 and WMAP. Um, it's also still flying on uh, another Mongoose 5-based processor system that uh, we built that is on EOS Aura and is the Ozone Monitoring Instrument Interface Adapter Module. So it's the OMEI AM box. So anyhow, uh, uh, I have very fond memories uh, of working on, uh, on EO1. And I'm really glad to be able to give the listening public on here on the Orbital Mechanics Podcast a little history of this really, uh, really great mission. Thanks. So cool. Thank you, Emery. We cool. really appreciate that. That was wonderful. <laughs> All right. So that was the pre-recorded version of Emery. Now here's the live one because he was able to join us at the last minute. <laughs> so how you doing, Hi, Emery? Emery. <laughs> hey, guys. Um, okay. So I, I had a question. Um, you were talking about um, finding a flaw in the processor that was elucidated when uh, it wasn't able to handle uh, an exception properly. How, like, I, I know how you handle exceptions in software because it, 
in in like Python, like everything just runs through uh, the interpreter. I mean, kind of, but like you you just you just type it in and it and it works. How how do you normally handle that when you're working with metal? And then how how does that actually how does a flaw in the processor result in that kind of an error? Well, so there was two things. Uh, there was this lack of implementation of the underflow. Right. And generally mm -hmm. you would set a control flag in one of the processor registers that says um, ignore underflows. And so it would when you when you executed this floating point instruction that would do, a, you know, a multiply of two very small numbers and you underflowed what the processor could store uh, into a floating point number, it would just give you back a zero in the result register. Okay, so you're multiplying register one times register two, and you're putting your result in register three, and it would just give you back a zero in register three, and it would probably throw a flag that said, oh, by the way, you underflowed this, and I'm giving you back a zero like you asked me to. The reverse of that would be, I don't want you to do that. I want you to throw an interrupt. So you would get a floating point exception, and you would uh, execute then an interrupt service routine that uh, would let you go handle it. Uh, yourself and you return to zero or, or whatever, uh, some pick, small pick lambda or yeah, yeah some small okay. number. However, w what this Mongoose 5 processor does is it just says that was an unimplemented instruction exception and it just didn't even tell you it was a floating point error. So we had to hook the unimplemented, unimplemented instruction error as an interrupt service routine and, the, and then go look at the, the the location of the interrupt. So what instruction was it that caused the fault, right? And we could look at that and we could decode the instruction and say, ah, this was a floating point instruction, right? Go emulate it. And in the emulation package, we could do what the silicon was really supposed to do and said, in the emulation package, if you encounter this thing, give me back a zero, right? And then you would have to take the result of the emulation package take its emulated uh, result and stuff it back into the destination register from the opcode because you'd have to decode the opcode to say uh, what was the destination register, right? So you had to do all these, all these crazy things. The problem was the flaw that we found was that sometimes when you, when you got this error and you went and looked at the instruction, it wasn't a floating point instruction it was actually pointing to the instruction after the floating point instruction. So in RISC processor, this is going to get really deep really fast. So sometimes in uh, RISC uh, processors, um, you have uh, pipelines, just like uh, somebody said here in the chat, you have a pipeline. And so you have an instruction, you have multiple instructions that can execute at once. One of them is called a, uh, a delay slot or a branch delay slot. And so sometimes it would point to the instruction that was in the branch delay slot rather than pointing into the instruction you had to back up one instruction so in our mm -hmm. floating point exception handler we would go look at the instruction if it's not a floating point instruction go look at the instruction prior to that and see whether that's a floating point instruction if it's not and it's a jump instruction then you have to go back to where you came from and look at the instruction inside the thing you jumped from the processor's not supposed to do that. It's really supposed to, you know, give you a pointer back to the instruction that caused the fault. So it's a processor, you know, there was a processor flaw there that shouldn't do that. And it wasn't even consistent that it would do that? Right. It wasn't consistent. Yeah. So sometimes, right? So there was all this extra screwball, you know, MIPS assembly code that would go back and, and uh, you had to, 
you had to actually drill back into the exception frame. Every time you do a subroutine call in a MIPS, it pushes a set of reg copy of the registers and some stack information into into stack RAM. And so you'd actually have to jump back a stack frame and look at that stack frame and see where you where it came from and then change where it was going back to because you had to go back to the instruction after the floating point instruction or back to the branch delay slot instruction, <laughs> wherever you, you know, whatever was after the floating point instruction where you came from. Because you emulated the floating point instruction. You didn't want to execute it again. You wanted to execute the next one. So, yeah, it was, it was a mess. <laughs> wow. <laughs> how long did that take? That Somebody asked how long did that take to debug? Mm. Almost nine months. And at the time, I only had, uh, so this is about um, 1998. Uh, we only had at the time, uh, 32-bit, uh, logic analyzers. And we have a 32-bit data bus and a 32-bit instruction bus. So I had to take two logic analyzers, daisy chain them, put one on the instruction bus, put one on the data bus, and then cause the fault. And we found a fault. We found a certain attitude control scenario that would cause not only the floating point underflow to occur, but would actually cause the processor fault. And it was very repeatable, but it took like an hour and a half to execute. So every iteration was an hour and a half long on multiple, you know, hardware logic analyzers uh, set up in the lab. And so it took me about nine months to write all that code. It was a real pain. I have a white paper that I will put up in a publicly available uh, space, and I'll give you guys a link to it so you can put it in the show notes. Great. Thank you. <laughs> See, this is, this is what I'm talking about is like the little tiny details may seem really esoteric and boring, but it's really where the interesting things happen. Like, yeah. And at that time we were working, this was kind of neat. We were working at Swales Aerospace, which is in Greenbelt, Maryland. That's now actually was bought by Orbital, was bought, was then merged with ATK and then was bought by Northrop Grumman. So the place where I actually worked is actually now a Northrop Grumman facility and it was in a high bay mezzanine above a high bay where they were building the spacecraft so i could actually look over the like the wall of the mezzanine uh about two stories one and a half stories up or two stories up and i looked down and actually watched them build the spacecraft so you know we had a whole software group up there in this in this mezzanine and i and i worked in that facility for about two years uh super fun group great uh people that we worked with um uh, Alvin Hawkins from AI Solutions, uh, Jeff D'Agostino and Kathy Blackman from the Hammers Company, uh, a couple people from Goddard, one of whom became my boss for a while, a guy named Ken Rem, who was really, really terrific. So yeah, uh, a, a great, a great team, a great bunch of people. That's what we call a perk being in the high bay. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah, you watch it, you watch it build a spacecraft. Yeah, high bays are cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to, recount this tale for us that that was a fantastic uh summary of the of the vehicle as well that's not something that we would have been able to put together as uh eloquently as you did yeah thanks or, or certainly as detailed yeah sure. it was super super fun it was a great mission and like i said it, it flew for so long uh you know i got to be at the launch we did early orbit ops for about the first six months uh just had a really good time with the mission it was just really and terrific. and how what percentage of your team was there at the decommissioning party uh, all those 16 and a half years later. There was a couple, three of us there. I think uh, uh, Chris Anafantas was there. I've lost track of um, uh, a couple of the guys. Uh, Ken Rem showed up and Jeff D'Agostino was there and we all kind of hoisted a beer and had a good time. 
Great. Well, thank you. I, I think we'll let you let you get back to your day if if you didn't have anything else that you think you can totally pull us into because i mean we're always <laughs> I, I, i'd like to say this one of the guys that i worked with who uh, who was a mechanical and systems engineer his name was steve schumacher uh steve has subsequently passed away but he was super proud of eo one and he and i palled around a lot uh together uh he introduced me to diablo 2 and i played diablo 2 for years and years, and years. <laughs> um, steve nice. was really terrific and one of the things that steve had worked on was he did some work on the extension for uh, the pistol grip tool, the the space station, mm-hmm. space shuttle, space station, uh, you know, smart um, electric drill. So he had worked on one of the extensions. So whenever I see the pistol grip tool, especially if I see one mm-hmm. of the extensions, I, I I think of Steve. So uh, he was he was super cool, uh, and I miss him a lot. That was wonderful. Thank you, Emery. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, thank glad you to do much. it. Uh, glad to be able to talk about that because you know nobody's really ever gonna have talked about it and, and so that's something that people really aren't going to know so it's kind of neat so then uh let's move on to the clue for next week then um the date range for that is the 24th through the 30th of november and the clue is in 1965 medaille de bronze so what does that mean um i guess break out your french dictionaries because i think i can give that much away it's clearly <laughs> french uh medaille de bronze which i think if you listen to it you can kind of tell what that means anyway just you know there's some <laughs> words in there. But what is that clue in reference to? Well, if you think you know what that is, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Cool. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Got a couple of launches in a spacewalk. Uh, what's the first launch, Ben? Yeah, we've got Electron flying return to sender. Um, so this is uh, 30 small satellites um, and, uh, and a gnome. And so uh, this is going to be really interesting. This is going to be their first use of parachutes uh, to to take another step down the road of first stage recovery. So Electron's going to be flying uh, on November 18th or 19th. Um, so if if you're in uh, UTC, that's going to be 014400. Uh, to 043400 on the 19th. If you are in the US, it's going to be 844 to 1134 p.m. Eastern time on the 18th. These uh, midnight spanning launches always uh, make me sit and scratch my head for a sec. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, November 18th and 19th. And of course, that's flying out of the Mahia Peninsula uh, launch complex in New Zealand. And then next up is on November 21st, and that is the launch of a Falcon 9 with Sentinel-6 Michael Freilich, which is the late director of NASA's Earth Science Division. Okay, I'm not familiar with the name, but uh, mm. there you go. So... Um, in honor of him. And yeah, so Sentinel-6, one of, uh, I, well, this is Sentinel-6A actually, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about the Sentinels. I believe that these are the ones, I don't know if it's probably not this one, but uh, they had that cool new communications technology with, that was the, um, what was it called? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, the the optical kind of. Yeah. Uh, um, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. But I know that Sentinel, like the first two were a test bed for that. So I don't know if this one has, you know, that particular technology integrated because uh, there's probably no need for it. So this is an Earth observation satellite that will be collecting data 
on sea level rise and that kind of thing, because that is what these Sentinels do. It will be launching at 1717 UTC and launching from Slick 4E. That will be, like I said, at 1717, which on the East Coast is 1217, so right around noon, um, and then on Pacific Time, 917 in the morning. So you can totally watch that one. Check that one out. And if you go back in time a little bit, we do have an EVA scheduled. And so on November 18th, Wednesday, at 8.30 a.m. Eastern, uh, coverage will begin for uh, the Expedition 64 uh, Russian Spacewalk number 47, uh, with the spacewalk itself to begin at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. And so this is going to be uh, Sergei uh, Rizhikov and Sergei Kudzverchko to uh, do some pretty interesting things. Essentially, um, first they're going to conduct some leak inspections outside the hatch, which is pretty important. And then uh, <laughs> they are going to move an antenna uh, from the pier's docking compartment to Poisk, uh, because ultimately over the next several spacewalks, Piers is being prepared for decommissioning and its ultimate undocking and disposal uh, in the atmosphere. And so um, it's going to be replaced uh, potentially by Nauka, which as Sam in the chat points out, is the brand new 40-year-old module um, <laughs> that uh, we might get to see uh, launched and actually make it to the uh, station at some point in the future. So uh, keep an eye out again for that. And this is again on uh, November 18th, uh, which is Wednesday morning. All righty. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make merch and birds on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. And we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.